These promises, although found in the Old Testament of the Bible, are so important that the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 describes them as precious promises. Precious because they contain in them the key to obtaining divine nature or eternal life. So even though they were spoken thousands of years ago to individuals that lived back in those times, they, they have a significance that reaches down through history to you and me today. That significance is revealed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 verse 8, where we read that Jesus Christ was sent by God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. These promises given in the Old Testament were confirmed in Jesus Christ. The reason for that is because each of the promises were about him and how his work of salvation will fulfil the terms of those promises. Already we have seen in the past two weeks how that worked. In Genesis 3 verse 15, God promised Eve that Jesus Christ would be born to bring an end to the enmity or warfare between good and evil, between truth and error. That came about because, sin, because of sin and disobedience by Adam and Eve in the beginning. The wages of sin is death, but by Jesus Christ, God's gift to mankind, there is hope of eternal life. This promise is going to be fulfilled when Jesus returns and rewards all those that are faithful with divine nature. In Genesis 12 through to 22, God promised Abraham that not only would Jesus Christ bring life, but that by his obedience to God's law, he would inherit the world. This inheritance would be achieved by conquering the world that is evil and in error. Abraham was told that Jesus will possess the gate of his enemies. This promise is going to be fulfilled when Jesus returns to the earth with the power of God to claim the world as his own. And tonight we're going to see how that God promised David that Jesus Christ would return and bring about that type of leadership that this world desperately needs. But before we look at the promise in detail, let me just highlight that Paul in Romans 15 here has these three promises in mind, to Adam, to Abraham, and to David. You'll notice if you look again at the reference on the screen that Paul says at the end of that verse that Jesus came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. What fathers are Paul, is Paul referring to? Well, clearly he means the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham received the promises from God and he passed on the right of those promises to his son Isaac, who in turn passed them on to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. But there were two other promises given, a second to Adam and a third to David. Those other two promises were also confirmed as certain to be fulfilled when Jesus came. So although Paul's reference here to fathers primarily is about Abraham in this context, let us not forget that there were two other fathers that are implied in this verse. The reason we know that is because the New Testament begins, there are three, when the New Testament begins, there are three fathers that are singled out as being in the lineage of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1 verse 1, the very first verse of the New Testament alerts us to the fact that Jesus Christ had two very special and faithful fathers in his lineage. Jesus is the son of David and son of Abraham. He came in his first advent to confirm the promises made to David and Abraham. But that is not the only father identified in the opening of the New Testament record. 
In Luke chapter 3, verse 38, there is another genealogy of Jesus recorded, and this genealogy traces back to Adam. The beginning of the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is son of David, Abraham, and Adam. So when Paul says Jesus came to confirm the promises made to the fathers, there are three fathers identified in the New Testament, David, Abraham, Adam. And to each of them, God gave important promises. Important promises because each of these promises form the foundation teachings of the gospel that Jesus Christ preached, which if a person believes and is baptised into, will give them hope of eternal life and an inheritance with Jesus Christ of the whole world. The first of these promises in Genesis 3 verse 15, as we saw a few weeks ago, is a promise of eternal life given in the Garden of Eden. It promises eternal life that would be made possible by the victory over sin that would be achieved in the life, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 13 verse 6, Jesus Christ is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is represented by the lamb that was sacrificed in Eden that became the symbol of the man and the woman's acceptance of the salvation that would be achieved in Jesus Christ. The very core teaching of the gospel message. And so I highly recommend you go onto our website and watch the first presentation of this series that covers that subject in more detail. The second of the promises in, is in Genesis 12, is a, land, a promise of land given to Abraham. Like the first promise given to Adam, this promise is unique. It contains further information that makes up the gospel message of salvation. Specifically, this promise is about the inheritance of land that God will give Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3 verse 8, we are told that this promise given to Abraham is part of the message of the gospel. And the end of that chapter in Galatians 3 verse 26 to 29 tells us that if we understand and believe the gospel preached to Abraham, and if we respond in baptism, we will also inherit the world with Jesus Christ. So again, I highly recommend you go onto our website and watch the second presentation on this subject. The third and final of the promises in the Bible given to the third of the fathers, David, is a promise that Jesus Christ will establish a form of leadership that will change this world and make it a place of harmony and peace that it was created to be. It is a promise that Jesus Christ will return to the earth to lead people back to God by establishing an eternal kingdom on earth. But before we look at this promise in detail, let me just reinforce that this promise that we read, read tonight is indeed about Jesus Christ, and secondly, that it is a promise that Jesus came to confirm. To do that, I want to direct you to two important statements made in this promise. The first is in verse 14, where God identifies who this leader is. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. God speaking here says that the leader promised here is his son, Jesus Christ. That is very, a very significant point in view of what we have seen so far. Yes, Jesus was born in the family line of a very important and faithful people, but there was something far more significant about Jesus' birth than that. In this promise, the most important thing about the genealogy of Christ is that God is his father. The leader promised to David, who would rule the world, is Jesus, the Son of God. 
The second important thing I want you to notice about this promise is what we read in verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Jesus would be appointed the leader of the world, and that appointment would be eternal. God's mercy would never be taken away from Jesus, the Son of God, because unlike the first king of Israel, and all other kings in fact, Jesus would never sin. So this promise given to David is about a mercy that would be sure and definite because the one who receives it will be perfectly obedient to his God. Now, with those two elements in mind, the leader is Jesus, the Son of God, and his leadership is eternal because God's mercy will always be with Jesus Christ as leader, let's come to Acts chapter 13. In this passage, we find that those two important elements of the promise are referred to here by the Apostle Paul. And he tells us that those two elements are fundamental issues of the gospel. In Acts 13, Paul immediately makes it clear that what he is about to tell us is about the gospel. Notice how he begins this section of the chapter in verse 32. We declare to you, says Paul, glad tidings. The word, words glad tidings in the Greek is the one word used in the New Testament, gospel. So we could read verse 32 as follows. And we declare unto you the gospel. Paul is preaching the gospel to the people there. What does he teach the gospel is? Well, let's read the rest of verse 32 through to verse 34. And we declare unto you the glad tidings or gospel, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers... God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now notice something peculiar there in verse 32. Paul says, I'm going to preach the gospel to you, and that gospel is about one promise. The word promise is singular, one promise to many fathers. Why is that important? Well, because what Paul is saying is that although there were three fathers to whom three different promises were made, to Adam, life, to Abraham, land, and to David, leadership, all three of those promises are in fact one promise, the teaching of the one gospel all one promise because they are all about Jesus Christ, each of them highlighting a different feature. Paul here has only one feature in mind as he preaches the gospel. It is the feature of the promise of leadership that was given to David. Look how he begins speaking about the promise to David in verse 33 on leadership. He begins by telling us what we read back in Romans 15, that the promises were confirmed or fulfilled by Jesus Christ. God has fulfilled the same. God has confirmed the part of the promise to David just as he did with the promise to Abraham and Adam. How did God confirm the promise to David? God did it, says Paul, when he raised Jesus from the dead and gave him eternal life. 
All three promises spoke of an immortal saviour, and he has come, says Paul. Who is he? Who is this saviour? Paul continues in verse 33 and connects us to the first point we saw back in 2 Samuel 7. In the end of verse 33, Paul quotes from Psalm 2, which is an echo of 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, and confirms God's declaration that Jesus Christ is his son. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Having made that connection, Paul now turns to the second point. In the end of verse 34, the mercy that God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 15 is referred to by Paul. God's mercy would be shown to his obedient son in that God would not allow Jesus to experience corruption in death, like David has, as Paul goes on to say in verse 35 to 36. But God would raise him from the dead to everlasting life. Now, before we move on from this verse, let me point out to you how that these verses are important to us on a personal level. Looking back at verse 32, notice the important statement by the Apostle Paul. He writes, God has fulfilled this same one promise unto us. This one promise, with three features that God left to the three fathers, can be ours also. It is the gospel preached to us. We can be beneficiaries of the, of the promise given to the fathers David, Abraham and Adam. How? Well, on our way back to 2 Samuel 7, let's stop at Mark chapter 16. The Lord Jesus Christ commissioned his apostles to go forth and preach the gospel. He told them what they were to say to the people who heard that gospel message in verses 15 to 16. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. To be involved in the hope of the one promise that God made to the three fathers, we need to follow the steps to salvation that God has. And there are three of them. Firstly, there needs to be a belief of the gospel. To believe it, a person must understand it. To understand it, one has to study its contents. Secondly, there needs to be commitment. This commitment begins with baptism, a full immersion in water after belief. That ritual brings a person into a close relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there needs to be consistency. The promises of life and land and leadership can be ours if we respond to the call of the gospel if we come to learn and understand the gospel and respond to it. A gospel that is taught in the New Testament but has its origin in the three important promises made to David, Abraham and Adam. So let's come back now to 2 Samuel 7 and let's briefly analyse this promise so that we can see its relevance to the purpose God has with establishing an eternal leader. things that we see happening about us today, the state of our world is thankfully not going to continue forever. There is an end coming for all the injustice, all the evil, all the violence and corruption of this world. God has a purpose that he is going to accomplish through Jesus Christ. And that change that God promises to bring upon the world will be done by a strong and fair and purposeful leadership of Jesus Christ, who will be sent back to the earth to rule. 
Now, we have already established that fact from verse 14 and 15 of this chapter. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the subject of this promise, verse 14, and that God has an eternal purpose with him. God's mercy will never depart from him, verse 15. So let's look now at the details of this promise, and we begin in verse 12, because God has something to say personally to David about the timing of this promise. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now there are a few things we need to notice here. David was to die before this part of the promise would be fulfilled. The leader that God promises is future from David's lifetime. After David was dead, God would set up a person in the lineage of David who would be given a kingdom. That's what the last phrase in verse 12 means, I will establish his kingdom. That person is identified in the end of verse 12 as a male, his kingdom. This is Jesus Christ. How is God going to establish Christ's kingdom on earth? Well, the answer to that question was given to Mary, the mother of Jesus. In Luke 1 verse 32, the angel that spoke to Mary about this, about Jesus, the son of David, says, He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. The kingdom that God promises here in 2 Samuel 7 to establish in Christ's name is the kingdom of Israel restored. That's why the first verse of the New Testament is so important. Jesus Christ is identified as of the lineage of David for this one reason, that he is the eternal heir to the throne of David and to the kingdom of Israel restored. That kingdom will be established, will, that kingdom will be centered in Jerusalem, the capital of the throne of Christ, of Christ's future kingdom. But that hasn't happened yet. It is still future. Jesus isn't ruling on a throne in Jerusalem today, but he will. Not only that, um, sorry, not only that, but in verse 13, when God establishes Christ as the leader of this kingdom, Christ will build a temple for God. He shall build a house for my name. The house that God is talking about here is a literal house or a temple to be built in Jerusalem. The kingdom of Israel in the past was noted for its magnificent temple that Solomon, the son of David, built. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This is not Solomon. This is Jesus Christ. The temple that Jesus will build will never be destroyed like Solomon's was. It will become a temple, not just for Jews, but for all nations. Well, when will all these things happen? The answer is in verse 16. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. All these things will happen when Jesus returns. That's what, is, what verse 16 is anticipating. Notice back in verse 12 we read that David was to die before this promise would be fulfilled. But he would not remain in the grave forever. In verse 16 we read, 
that David is to be resurrected from the dead to not only see Christ build his kingdom, but to be part of it. The resurrection will happen when Jesus returns to the earth from heaven to establish God's kingdom on earth and to build the temple in Jerusalem. So this promise to David gave him the hope that he would be raised to receive eternal life promised to Adam, that he would be resurrected and inherit the world with Jesus Christ, promised to Abraham, and that David would help Jesus Christ administer the laws in the kingdom to bring about positive changes to our world. We haven't got time to develop that further now because there are so many Bible verses that speak about the good things that Jesus will achieve when he sets up his kingdom. But let me refer you to just one passage on this matter that is worth looking up later. Psalm 72. Psalm 72 describes what changes Jesus Christ will bring and why his rule will succeed. Here is a snippet of the changes. Firstly, in verse 2, he shall judge all people with righteousness. Christ will personally be involved in the global administration of righteous laws. These laws will deliver exactly what is lacking in the world today. In verse 7, it says that there shall be an abundance of peace as long as the moon endures. Peace will not only be worldwide, but it will endure throughout eternity. In verse 11, all present rulers will gladly relinquish their positions of power and willingly submit to Jesus Christ when they realise how beneficial his rule will be. In verses 12 to 14, they will see that his focus of care will bring relief to the poor and needy. And the reason those things and others will work is because in verse 15, Jesus shall live, and in verse 17, his name will endure as long as the sun. Both of those expressions mean that Jesus will rule eternally. There will be no change of government, no change to the system Jesus Christ puts in place. In Daniel 2, verse 44, we read this summary. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's what the promise to Dave, given to David anticipates. The coming of the new leader, Jesus Christ. Now, in all the promises so far, we have seen that God offers the opportunity to be part of them. In Acts 13, remember, we read, God has fulfilled these promises to us. We are offered an opportunity to be involved in this promise to David. Let's come back to verse 11 of this promise. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also Yahweh telleth thee that he will make thee an house. It is that last sentence that I want you to notice. The Lord telleth thee that he will make thee, David, a house. You know, from the moment God made his first promise to Adam, God has been involved in a building project himself. This building project referred to in the end of verse 11 is not a building of bricks and mortar. This is a house of people. God promised David that he would develop the lineage of people whom he would call to participate in these amazing promises. The people who make up this house are not related by blood. 
They're related by their faith in God and Jesus Christ. They are people who have read the promises of God that are fundamental to the gospel, believe them and have responded by being baptised and, the, and then living consistently in godliness. Friends, God wants you and me to be part of the house, the family that have the faith of David. When Jesus returns to the earth and raises David from the grave, David will witness two things. In verse 16, he will firstly see his house of faithful people, and secondly, he will see the kingdom of Israel restored by Jesus Christ. And we can be there too, friends, as part of that. What do we need to do? Let's come to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 2. Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. In verse 2, we have a summary of our life in this world today. We labour for financial stability, but we never will achieve it. There is no lasting satisfaction in what the world offers us. If you have come to that realisation, then God says in verse 1, Come to me, for I have something that is free and lasting, that will satisfy you eternally. What is it that God has? Well, verse 3, he says, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. God has the sure mercies that he gave David to give to us. The merciful hope of a leader that will solve all of humanity's problems and bring peace. Those mercies are found in the gospel, in the promises that God gave that we have so briefly touched on tonight. The one promise given to three fathers, Adam, Abraham and David. The one promise of eternal life, of eternal inheritance and eternal leadership. The one promise of the gospel that can be ours if we believe, are baptised and live in faith of God's coming kingdom on earth. Friends, these promises are not obscure or unimportant Old Testament words. They are real and relevant to us. They reveal the sure purpose of God with Jesus Christ and with this earth. They provide us with hope, showing us how we can escape the destiny of those that refuse God and we can have hope of divine nature. If we want eternal life, then learn from the error of Adam. Hear and obey God's law. If we want an internal inheritance, then follow Abraham, who turned his back on the world and looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. If we want eternal leadership, then trust in the mercy of God that never forsakes the faithful. If we do that, friends, then in the future we will joyously sing these words, written by Jesus Christ as the song of those he saves, recorded in Revelation 5, verse 9 to 10. Thou wast slain, 
and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, the promise of life to Adam. Thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, the promise of leadership to David. And we shall reign on the earth, the promise of land to Abraham. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Four years ago, I had the unenviable experience of having to put um, parents into a nursing home. My wife and I, and I had the, uh, the task of um, um, selling their home uh, and having to go through all their belongings. Uh, some we sold, some we gave away. Uh, and then on settlement day, <clears throat> we shut the front door to their house for the last time. They had lived in that house for 49 years. And as I drove away, I reminisced about the experiences that I had shared in that house. And then I asked myself this question, what legacy did my parents leave me in that home? And the answer, the answer to that question was quite simple. They left me with a legacy of understanding the Bible. 53 years ago, my father, who was involved with the Greek Orthodox Church, went to a Bible seminar, similar to the one that you have um, come to today or you are viewing. In fact, it was in this very hall and I accompanied him. He went to a Bible seminar without a Bible. And there was nothing unusual about that from his point of view. He didn't normally take a Bible to church on a Sunday. He didn't need one because the priest, the pastor, told him what he needed to know about God. When the seminar began, the presenter, to Dad's astonishment, quoted the Bible a number of times throughout the seminar to validate information that he was giving. And my father sat there listening very intently. The expression on his face told me that something was wrong. And what was wrong was that my father was dumbfounded by what he had heard. Because none of what he was said on that seminar matched what my father believed, or indeed what the majority of Christian churches teach. And what dumbfounded him even more was that the Bible references that were quoted by the speaker seemed to clearly support uh, the interpretation of them and my father was shocked that they did. And so he went home determined to look up his Bible and to ch check out the verses for himself. His Bible was a Greek Bible. The New Testament was written in Greek. So my father reckoned that whatever verses the presenter had used from his English Bible, they were probably a very poor translation and that the Bible didn't really teach what the presenter said it did. But to his astonishment, when he checked the references to his Greek Bible, he found the interpretation of the presenter was exactly uh, as the Greek text of his Bible. And so the next Sunday he went to his own church and he spoke to his priest, who by the way was a very good friend of, of Dad's. They had come out of Greece together at the same time. And, and Dad's friend wanted to pursue religion and so he, he went back uh, to Greece, he studied uh, religion, he became a Greek Orthodox church and he came back to Australia. So Dad was fairly comfortable uh, speaking to this man and quite confident that he would help Dad answer these ideas that he'd heard at a seminar that cut across what he believed. What he did not expect was to get there and find that not only did his friend the priest not have an answer 
um, to the verses of the Bible that he put before him, but that he couldn't answer these questions without looking at church tradition. And he told Dad, Dad, to my dad, you are a bus driver, which at the time he was employing, and the priest said to him, well, if I come on your bus, I trust you know your job, I trust you know where you are going, I don't tell you where you're going, I don't tell you that you're going the right way, nor do I suggest there might be a quicker way. I just trust you. And in the same way, he said, I'm the priest, you should not question what I have to say. Uh, you need to just accept that I know because that's my occupation. I've studied for this job, I have qualifications. Well, as you can imagine, my dad was taken aback by that comment and the priest agreed that the Bible was the word of God, but he would not quote it. He didn't reference it uh, to answer the challenges. He just quoted church faith and church tradition. And when Dad had questioned him further, he told him, trust me, religion is my job. Well, Dad came away from that discussion more confused than ever. And he agreed that he knew, he knew he was, he, that Dad was a bus driver and he knew how to drive buses better than the priest, but that didn't mean that he always got it right driving around the streets of Adelaide. There were times when he read the daily maps incorrectly and ended up losing his way. And from, from what he had heard at the seminar, that he had attended, he wondered if the priests in the church were lost as well. So Dad was determined to search the Bible for himself and sort out this issue once and for all. He was going to read the Bible slowly, he was going to read it carefully, he was going to see uh, if he came to the same conclusions that the presenter did at that seminar. So he started to read the Bible. Now, you may be aware that the Bible is divided up into two parts, Old and New Testament. Altogether, there are 66 books 19 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. There are altogether 1,189 chapters in the Bible. There are exactly 31,102 verses. Where was he going to start? Well, he started with the three verses that the presenter put before him that became the problem in his mind because the presenter said that these three references summarise the main teachings of the Bible. So let me put before you those three references on the screen and let's see what those, those verses say. So the first of the, the verses was 1 John chapter 2 and verse 25. This is the promise that God has promised us even eternal life. So the Bible, said the presenter, teaches that eternal life, never-ending life, is something that is promised by God. And did you notice in that passage that it says eternal life is promised? We don't possess it. It's a future blessing that God will give to those whom he determines are worthy of that eternal life. And so contrary to popular church teachings that my father had embraced, the Bible teaches that man does not possess or have eternal life in any way, shape or form as part of him. Man does not have an immortal spark or an immortal soul that lives on when the body dies. Rather, the Bible teaching, according to that verse, is very clear. Eternal life is what God promises to give those that follow his commandments. So very obviously, point number one, eternal life is promised by God as a future hope it is not possessed by men and women tonight, today. That's what the Bible teaches. That was the claim of the presenter proven by the Bible. The second reference he picked out <clears throat> from those 31,102 verses is Psalm 37 and verse 29, where we read that the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. So the Bible teaches that God's intention is to give the land, and by that, it means the earth, the planet. God intends to give the planet to those who respond to God and who are prepared 
to follow his instructions. He's going to give it to the righteous. And the word land in that verse in the Hebrew is mostly translated earth in the Bible. The land is the whole earth. And verse 11 goes on to tell us that. The meat shall inherit the earth forever. That's the sign that's up on the back of our uh, hall this, this evening. So just as God promised to give eternal life to those that obey him, so he promises to give the earth to those same individuals who are described in verse 29 as righteous before God or as the meek uh, in verse 11. Righteous describes people who obey God's set of instruction, instructions and who do what is right before him. Meekness means that these people are willing and glad and selflessly uh, willing to devote their lives to, God's, to God. So <clears throat> the whole earth is to become the inheritance of those that respond to the call of God. The whole earth is going to become the eternal inheritance for the righteous and the meek of God. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the presenter told my father. The third reference in those 31,102 verses is Daniel 2 and verse 44. The God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom will not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces. It will consume all of other kingdoms in the world, and it shall stand forever. So the Bible teaches that God intends to establish upon this earth a worldwide kingdom that will be ruled over by those who are promised immortality, the righteous and the meek of Psalm 37. And this kingdom will not be left to the mortal populations for them to rule. This kingdom will be, the rulership will be taken away from them and it will be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be the king of that future time and he will have with him a company of people who have been made immortal and they are going to assist him to govern the world. And that fact is actually um, expressed in, um, in Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10 where we read that the meek of Psalm 37 are going to receive immortality promised by God and they will rule with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. They will make up the fabric of the government of Jesus Christ. So from just those three references of the Bible, the presenter was able to give my father a fairly good picture of what the whole message of the Bible is, the whole purpose of God. God wants to save people. He wants to give them the earth and he wants to make establish a kingdom. Now before we move on, let, let me ask you to think about these three references we have just looked. Did you know that the Bible teaches that we don't have immortality in us, that we don't have a soul that leaves the body, but rather that immortality is something that we have to get. My father didn't. When he went back to his church, the priest told him that what he had heard was absolutely absurd. Everyone has an immortal soul, which at death continues to live on, he said. And the proof of that, we've been taught that at the ecumenical college. Did you know that the Bible teaches that the earth is going to be the inheritance of the faithful? And they are going to possess it forever. The priest told my father that when he died, he would either go to heaven or to a fiery place called hell. And the proof, that's what he'd been taught at his ecumenical college. Did you know the Bible teaches that God is going to, to set up a real and a very literal kingdom on the earth with Jesus Christ as the king? And he will be given the responsibility to rule the world with his co-helpers. My father didn't know that. And the priest told him that the only kingdom he was aware of was a kingdom in heaven, where good people go at death. And the reason he knew he believed that was because that's what he'd been taught at his ecumenical college. So I guess you can imagine how my father felt when the, when the presenter opened up the Bible to him and, and read him those simple and clear and unmistakable verses 
and asked him whether he believed those teachings. He was horrified to realise that the teachings of the church did not match what he, what he was, what was in the Bible. That the priest was teaching things that were completely opposite to what the Bible had said. In fact, what horrified him the most was realising that the fault was really his own, because he had just accepted what he was being told without even having a Bible at home. He did what the majority of Christians do, friends. He'd leave the church without checking his Bible. And you know, that's the worst thing that we can do, to know who God really is and what his purpose is, is an important aspect uh, and teaching of the Bible. In, in John chapter 17 and verse 3, we are told that it's life eternal to know God. Eternal life is promised to us by God. And to receive it, we have to begin to know God. We have to understand the truth about him. It's not the truth, not the truth, that God is a God who has made us with an immortal soul. It's not the truth that God is a God who's going to take us to heaven to live when we die. It's not the truth that God has no future purpose with this earth. If that's the God we know, then we are not going to receive eternal life. So from this point on, I want to, I want to take you through the Bible very briefly and show you how that these three references uh, and the teaching of these three references that my father um, heard on, on that first night are expanded and repeated throughout the Bible and that they are fundamental doctrines of the Bible. In fact, in the reading that we had, the Apostle Peter refers to these promises and he tells us that God wants to give these promises to us. Look at what he says, what Peter says to us in verse 4. He says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, the first thing I want you to notice there about this verse is that it agrees with the verses that we've already looked at. I want you to notice the consistency of the teaching of the Bible as we go through this evening. First of John 2, verse 25, we were told that eternal life is promised, not possessed. And Peter, in this verse, endorses that. He tells us that in the Bible there are promises that, he says, we might be partakers of divine nature. We don't have it. We might be partakers of it. And divine, that means God's nature, God's life, which is immortality. We don't possess immortality. We don't possess divine nature. But there are promises, says the Apostle Peter, in the Bible that specifically and very directly tell us how we might gain immortality. And that totally agrees, as I say, with 1 John chapter 2 and verse 25. Now, let me just pause here and let me just explain to you what divine nature is, because this is a term that we don't come across in, in everyday conversation. You may have never heard that expression before. What is divine nature? Why is it so important? Well, in the Bible, there are two types of nature that are described. And the word nature means the condition or the exist of the existence of life. There are only two types of conditions possible recorded in the Bible. One of those types of, of nature mentioned in the Bible, we have here in verse 4, as divine nature, uh, and that is the nature of the essence of God himself. So how is divine nature... Um, identified in the Bible. Well, in the Bible we read that a, a divine nature is having, is being physically strong. Isaiah 40 and verse 28 describes never tiring. It means in Isaiah 55 verse 9 to be strong mentally, no limit to a person's understanding, ability to understand. Romans 9 and verse uh, 14 says, cannot sin, only does good. 
And 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16 tells us that divine nature is a nature which can, where we cannot die. And the Greek word means that in that passage is that God has this divine nature. It emanates from him and he gives it to, his, to, his, um, to those that he um, desires to give it to. And the angels have that nature uh, today. The other type of nature that is possible is called human nature. And that is a condition that we all possess. We are born with this nature and we're going to see why in a moment. And what is human nature? Well, it's the very opposite to what we have seen about divine nature. Physically weak. Isaiah 40 describes man having a mortal existence, decaying, having illness and dying. Jeremiah 10 says that uh, human nature is a nature where mentally there's a weakness there, unable to make proper decisions about universal goodness. Romans 3, we are governed by human lust, sinful. And 1 Corinthians 15 Mortal human nature is a dying nature, it is destined to death. And you and I, as I say, possess that human nature. The Bible says that we possess that nature, a nature that ends in death. So now look at the importance of, the, of 2 Peter 1 and verse 4 to us. God promises to remove human nature that we have inherited at birth, that is weak and sinful and dying, and he promises us a strong, cannot sin, cannot die nature, a divine nature. How do we get this nature? Well, the key to obtaining divine nature, says the Apostle Peter, is found in a series of great and precious promises that we need to identify, we need to understand, and we need to respond to. A set of promises that are conditional, they might be ours, we don't have them yet. So how do we find these promises that God has given? Because God makes very many promises in the Bible. In fact, you may be interested to know there are 3,573 promises that God makes. How do we know which of all those promises are promises that are great and precious ones that will lead us to divine nature? Well, Peter tells us there are three things that we should be looking for to find in these promises. In verse 4, the first thing that marks a promise as great and precious, it will be about divine nature. That means these great and precious promises have an eternal life element about them. They will be referring to eternal life, immortality exclusively. But that's not all. Notice that Peter also says that these promises will show us how to escape the corruption, escape the inevitable uh, terrible state we find ourselves in, a state where we are destined to, to die. So these promises will educate us in a way that we will be able to identify things that are evil and we will separate ourselves from doing those evil things. They will teach us what to do to avoid uh, falling into harmful and detrimental uh, areas in our lives. It will, they will teach us how to obtain divine nature. So that's the second point. These promises will present a course of action that we must take so that we might become involved and recipients of those promises. And the third thing that we need to look out for that marks these promises as great and precious is that divine nature has been made possible because of the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what John 17 verse 3 said. Remember, life eternal to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so Peter in this chapter endorses that fact. Jesus Christ is the example to us, showing us how we can gain divine nature. And here's the example because he su succeeded in his own life and now he possesses a divine nature. And so the hope of the Bible, friends, of the promises is centred on Jesus Christ. And when we read through that section from verses 1 to 11, you would have noticed that. Verse 1, Peter begins with the fact that Jesus Christ is the Saviour. In verse 2, he tells us that grace and peace come from knowing Jesus Christ. In verse 8, from following the example of Jesus Christ, our lives will have meaning and, and fruitfulness. They'll have reason. And in verse 11, Paul talks about an everlasting kingdom 
of Jesus Christ that God wants us to have. And so the third point to identifying these, these promises, these great and precious promises, is that the promises are holy and totally about the work of Jesus Christ as the Saviour. So the great and precious promises will contain those, those three elements. An eternal life element, there will be instructions on what we need to do, and Jesus Christ will be the central focus of those promises. So where do we find those promises in the Bible? Well, let's take our simple verses and, and what they teach, and let's ask the question, when did God first mention these ideas in the Bible? Let's start with that first reference, First of John 2 and verse 25. In that passage, John talks about the promise of God concerning eternal life. And let's ask the question, where in the Bible does God first promise that he will give eternal life to people who know him and want to follow his instructions? Where does God first give a promise of life? Well, let's come back to the beginning of our Bibles, to, to Genesis um, ch chapter 2 and chapter 3. And we come here to the beginning of the human history because this is where God's intention of <clears throat> saving humanity were interrupted by the disobedience of the first man and the woman, the consequences of which we experience today. And I want to begin with that command that God gave Adam when he was to allow him to execute his free will and to demonstrate his appreciation of all that God had done for him. And God formed Adam, and, and let's just notice how he did before we go to that verse. Genesis 2, verse 7, we read that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So God made man a living soul. And that's very specific language. Adam was not made an immortal soul. It does not say that. He was a living soul. That's why in John, 1 John 2 and verse 25, eternal life is promised, not possessed. Adam was formed with the capability of death very real. But God didn't want Adam to die. He wanted to give him divine nature. And so in verses 16 to 17, God gave Adam a command that if he listened to, and if he followed, he would secure for Adam and his wife eternal life. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now I want you to notice two words in that command that are, that are very important, worth highlighting, to show us that the command of God was given to Adam with the emphasis that there is no reason why it should not be obeyed. There's no reason why this promise should not be obeyed, says God. The first word is in verse 16. It's the word every. Every tree in the garden was freely given. And that word every is recognising the enormous goodness of God. In the second of Peter 2 and verse 9, we read that God is willing, uh, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to obey him. This command that God gave in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 is weighed heavily on the side of God's goodness. The other word to notice is in verse 17, the word the. The one tree. Every tree is yours to enjoy. The tree, one tree, is not. So see, God did not make it impossible for Adam to obey. He made it achievable. What did they do with God's command? Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. 
What did they do with the achievable goodness of God's command? They disobeyed. Why? Because back in verse 4 of chapter 3, the woman chose to listen to the words of a serpent that had a misconception of God's law and yet suggested that his observation was true and ought to be followed. You will not die, said the serpent. And, verse, and worse than that, in verse 5, the serpent added, not only will you not die, but God knows, but God knows that you will not die. Now, friends, that's exactly the point that the Greek Orthodox priest made to my father. You do have an immortal soul, and God knows you have. Believe it. But like the serpent, unfortunately, the priest was wrong. And this woman should have known better. She should have looked at God's law clearer. Let's just briefly look at what she did and, and how wrong she was about what God had said. In verse 6, we read that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. You know what? It wasn't. The tree of the knowledge was not good for food. God had made it ever so clear that it was not good for food. There was not going to be a healthy result in eating that fruit. It wasn't going to satisfy hunger. It wasn't going to bring a feeling of satisfaction. It wasn't going to be enjoyable at all. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't going to have that effect. Now, if we come back to chapter 2 and verse 9, God told the man what trees would be good for food, delicious and appetising. In chapter 2 and verse 9, Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, notice how specific the divine record is written there with a deliberate division, a specific order. God created lots of trees, and every tree that he created was good for food. But in the end of that verse, there are two trees created that are not grouped with the other trees. And by implication, there are two trees that were not made good for food. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are separated in that verse from the other trees. And those two trees, the fruit of those trees, were not for satisfying hunger. They were not for refreshment. The fruit of the tree of life had only one characteristic. It would bring life eternal to its consumer. In chapter 3 and verse 22, we are told that a person who ate that fruit, the fruit of the tree of life, would live forever. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil had only one characteristic described in chapter 2 and verse 17 in that command. It would impart death as the final consequence. There was nothing good for food in the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's why those two trees are deliberately separated in that verse from the other trees. There is, an, there is no conjunction word there. It doesn't say that all the trees were good for food with these trees or and these trees. Why did the woman think the fruit of the tree of the knowledge was, of, of good and evil was good for food when the instructions were so clear? It was, it was because she let the serpent's words divert her attention away from reality. The woman made a serious error of judgment when she thought that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food, and God had deliberately said it's not. So coming back to Genesis 3, verse 6. The second thing the woman did was that she saw that the tree was pleasant to the eyes, that it looked desirable. 
How is it possible that she saw the fruit in that manner? God's law had described that fruit as anything but desirable to the eye. It should have been repulsive. It should have been ugly in her eyes. Again, if we look back to chapter 2 and verse 9, God not only made to grow every tree that was good for food, notice the record says, but the fruit of every tree that was good for food was also pleasant to the eyes. And the Hebrew word here, although not the same word as chapter 3 verse 6, has the same idea. It describes something of beauty that one sees as desirable. Every other tree that was made bore beautiful fruit that were designed to appeal and be des desirable to the eyes. And again, the fact that the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge are not included in that expression, in that part of the verse, would imply that the fruit of both those trees was not made in that way, to draw attention to the fruit. Adam and Eve and the woman in that would not see, were not supposed to see the fruit in, in the same way as they saw every other. God did not make the fruit of those trees attractive because it was not externals that would come into play when they took either the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The appeal or repulsion of the fruit of those trees was not to come from outward observation. They had to have, there had to be a mental consideration of what those two trees and the fruit of those trees would do if taken. There had to be a careful analysis of the law that God gave and what that law meant. And you know, when we look back at the, at the conversation between the servant and the woman uh, in verses 1 to 3, and we, and we compare her words to the law that God gave, we notice some very significant issues that would have us question as to whether, in fact, the woman had given enough attention, enough thought to the law of God. Had the woman clearly understood, had she embraced the law that God gave fully, was she ready to defend it? And the evidence is that she had not. So coming back to Genesis 3 verse 6, the third thing that the woman did was to respond to the serpent's suggestion that eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would improve her life by making her wiser, a wisdom that would give her a status equal uh, with God, equal with the angels. And how mistaken she was. The law of God made it clear that partaking of this tree would not bring wisdom, would not elevate status, it would demote and condemn. It would relegate the partaker of the fruit to a low, lower status. Why did she think that equality with God would be achieved by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? She hadn't thought thoroughly. She hadn't digested the law of God properly. And back in chapter 2 and verse 17, God put it a lot stronger than that. He said, thou shalt surely die. The Hebrew is, thou, must, thou will most surely, you will surely die. The fruit would not lift the woman's status. It would not make her wise. She would not prosper. It would bring about a fall of status that would result in certain death. And in verses 7 to 8 of chapter 3, the truth of God's law is realised when they experience the consequences of disobedience and suddenly their eyes were opened to the awfulness of their situation. They were not wise as the angels. They were foolish. What were they to do? Instead of becoming wiser, instead of prospering, both became terrified and ashamed. And they hid themselves. They were afraid to stand before the face of the angels, ashamed because they were naked physically and spiritually. They knew that they were facing judgment. So was that going to be the end of God's purpose? No, it wasn't. God is not willing that any perish, but that all have hope of eternal life. And so God was going to provide a hope for the prosperity of Adam and the woman. And that hope is going to be found in the first promise that God gave to humanity 
a promise of, of hope for eternal life through the, through the salvation that would be accomplished in Jesus Christ. Let's read this promise and let's look at the three elements that are, met, are found in this promise. Verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, if you've read that, that, that verse for the first time, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't see eternal life promised in that verse. I don't see any instructions as what I ought to be doing. And I certainly don't see Jesus Christ mentioned in that promise. And I agree, when we read the verse at face value, we don't see these things. But remember, God wants us to search, to know. He wants us to search deeper than just the surface. So if we look again at the verse and we think about it, all three of the elements are really there. Eternal life is here, instructions on how we can achieve it are here, and Jesus Christ is here in the promise. So where is eternal life? I think it's in the first two words, I will. Because that's God who's speaking. God is the God who Peter describes as being the source of divine nature, the source of eternal life. God is eternal life. And his promise here is about that. Proof that this is about eternal life? Well, in verse 20, Adam calls his wife's name Eve, which means the mother of living. How can she be the mother of all living if God is, what God is talking about here is just about dying? The only way she can be the mother of living is if what God promises is about eternal life. And everything about God is eternal life. Eternal life is here because God is speaking and God is promising to remove the situation that man has put himself in. I will, says God, remedy the situation with my way of salvation. And just by the way, the words I will are an abbreviation of God's name, which means the fulfilment of his purpose to bring life, inheritance of land, and a kingdom. So the identification of God in this promise implies eternal life is the substance of this promise. Where is the instruction alerting us to, the, to how we ought to respond to this promise personally? The answer to that is in the word <clears throat> enmity. The word means division or a dividing line. In, in, in essence, it means separation. God is promising to create a division in the world. The dividing line is between the serpent and the woman, as we read in verse 15. And what that means is God was clearly identifying the difference between what the serpent stood for and what the woman stood for in this story. The serpent in this verse represents error, evil. That's what it spoke. It was error. The woman, on the other hand, represents truth. Even though she didn't practice it, she spoke it. That's what she spoke. It was the truth. So God's promises here begins with an appreciation that there are two different responses or courses in life. One is a path of error, which leads to disobedience of God's law, God's ways. And the other is a path of good, a recognition of, of morally right principles, and, and that those principles lead to eternal life. It continues by showing that these two ways or paths are opposites. That's why there's enmity there. There's a battle between good and evil. And the implication of this promise is, if we want eternal life, then we need to ensure that we are on the side, the line of the woman, on the side of the truth, on the side of God. Otherwise, we will not receive eternal life. Back in verse 14, the serpent was cursed by God to slither in the earth from that time forward. 
and all those who live the lie of the serpent, that God doesn't mean what he says, and we won't die, we live forever, will not receive eternal life. The instructions of this promise is to follow God's ways and stand separate from a world that refuses to believe and to follow God. So eternal life is here in this promise and instructions how we can have hope of life are here also. Where is Jesus Christ in this promise? The answer is in the final two statements that are made in Genesis 3.15. And these statements are about the fact that evilness will not remain in the earth forever and that the sin that came into the world by disobedience will certainly be removed by God. Now that promise, as I said, is in these two statements. It shall bruise thy head and that thou shalt bruise his heel. Let's look at the second, the second statement there because that will help us to understand the first one, which is a little perplexing. The thou <coughs> in, that, in, that, uh, in that statement is the serpent in context, which spoke error. The word bruise is more correctly crush. And the heel is a part of the body that when crushed will result in pain and suffering, but it's not fatal, it's temporary. The one inflicted with this treatment will survive. The one whose heel is crushed is identified as a male person in that verse, by the use of that personal pronoun, his. Who is this man who was crushed by evil people and yet who survived? Well, before we answer that, and just so there's no mistake, let's look at the first statement and combine these two statements together. It shall bruise thy head. The thy here is referring to the same identity called thou in the second statement. It is the serpent who represents the evilness, the evil people governed by sin. The word bruise is the same word in the second statement, and it means crush. The head is the centre of the thinking of the part of the, part of the body, and to crush it means to completely kill. This phrase is referring to an infliction that causes death. And this violent action, says that statement, is going to be done by it. And that word it in the Hebrew is the exact same word rendered his in the second statement. And that word is a personal pronoun, masculine gender, and should be uh, rendered he shall bruise, crush thy head fatal. Who would do that? The answer, as the rest of the Bible goes on to say, is Jesus Christ. We know that because we're told that in the New Testament. Jesus Christ was born into this world for that very purpose, that he might destroy error. Hebrews 2 and verse 14 tells us that Jesus came and took part of the same nature, human nature, that through death he might destroy, crush on the head, him that had the power of death, that is the diabolos, the devil or sin. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ came firstly to fulfil the terms of the promise of Genesis 3.15 on a personal level. In his death he crushed error and sin on the head. It no longer lived in him. And because of Christ's obedience to God, God gave him eternal life and he 
removed human nature from Jesus' body once and for all. And having achieved that victory in himself, Hebrews 2 goes on to say in verse 15, he is able to deliver us who through fear of death were all our lifetime subject to the bondage of sin and death. Jesus Christ is going to deliver those who recognise the reality of death and want to overcome it. He will deliver us and he will give us hope of eternal life if we become related to this hope. How do we become related? Well, the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve was, was not automatically secured by them. They actually had to do something to become related to that promise in Genesis 3.15. In verse 21 of chapter 3, we read that God sacrificed a lamb and he took the skin of that lamb to provide clothes for them. They were already clothed. It was with fig leaves, a covering of leaves that would wither and decay. wouldn't last long. And God wanted them to put away that covering of fig leaves and he wanted them to be clothed with skins that would last a lifetime. Would they discard the skin coverings God provided? Would they continue to wear fig leaves that would rot? Well, if they wanted an entrance and an ability to embrace the promises of God that he was giving them in Genesis 3.15, they had to wear the covering that he provided. And that covering is found in Jesus Christ. In Revelation 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that animal that was slain here in, in verse 21 in Genesis chapter 3 to cover Adam and Eve pointed forward to Jesus Christ, who, we, who was slain for his people, that they might learn what they needed to do to be saved. The death of the animal represented Jesus Christ who died to destroy sin. And God wants us, friends, to do exactly the same thing. To embrace the promise. Not by literally providing a sacrifice to God, but symbolically to do that. God wants us to be covered with Jesus Christ. Not with the covering that we have now of human nature, which will rot. God wants us to do exactly what Adam and Eve were caused to do, to become covered by Jesus Christ. How did we do that? Well, in Old Testament times, God asked the Jews to make animal sacrifices, as he does here. But let's come to Mark chapter 16 to see what Jesus told his apostles to say to New Testament believers, to say to us, the majority of whom would be non-Jews or Gentiles. In Mark 16, this is what the apostles told believers to do. Verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, he said to every creature, he told the apostles, and tell the people, he that believeth and is baptised will be saved. He that believeth not will be condemned. So to receive eternal life, to gain divine nature, we have to believe the gospel. The teachings that form the gospel is exactly what we considered very briefly in Genesis 3 verse 15. And if we want to receive eternal life, we have to understand the promises that God made to Eve, believe that Jesus Christ has overcome sin in himself and he will do it for us. And we need to be baptised. We need to undertake a ritual that is the same as that done by Jews. That will mean that we are committed to separating ourselves from the evil and dedicating our lives to obeying God's ways. That we want God's covering. So from that very first simple and clear Bible reference, that eternal life is a promise. Not something we possess now. God has 
by means of this great and precious promise that we looked at tonight, offered us eternal life. That's what my father came to realise. He didn't know the true God. He didn't have the covering of Christ. So he went home, he got his Bible, and he started doing some research. And friends, that's all really what we want you to do tonight. We don't expect you to immediately accept what we have presented to you. However, we do believe that the Bible, the message of the Bible, does challenge what is taught by the church. So please take the information that we have given you, go over it, check it, and if you have questions about it, then please come back. Because there's a second and a third promise that God makes to us, promises about eternal inheritance and eternal rulership in God's kingdom on earth that are worth listening to and will be the subject of our next two lectures. These promises, although found in the Old Testament of the Bible, are so important that the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 describes them as precious promises. Precious because they contain in them the key to obtaining divine nature or eternal life. So even though they were spoken thousands of years ago to individuals that lived back in those times, they, they have a significance that reaches down through history to you and me today. That significance is revealed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 verse 8 where we read that Jesus Christ was sent by God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. These promises given in the Old Testament were confirmed in Jesus Christ. The reason for that is because each of the promises were about him and how his work of salvation will fulfil the terms of those promises. Already we have seen in the past two weeks how that worked. In Genesis 3, verse 15, God promised Eve that Jesus Christ would be born to bring an end to the enmity or warfare between good and evil, between truth and error. That came about because, sin, because of sin and disobedience by Adam and Eve in the beginning. The wages of sin is death, but by Jesus Christ, God's gift to mankind, there is hope of eternal life. This promise is going to be fulfilled when Jesus returns and rewards all those that are faithful with divine nature. In Genesis 12 through to 22, God promised Abraham that not only would Jesus Christ bring life, but that by his obedience to God's law, he would inherit the world. This inheritance would be achieved by conquering the world that is evil and in error. Abraham was told that Jesus will possess the gate of his enemies. This promise is going to be fulfilled when Jesus returns to the earth with the power of God to claim the world as his own. And tonight we're going to see how that God promised David that Jesus Christ would return and bring about that type of leadership that this world desperately needs. But before we look at the promise in detail, let me just highlight that Paul in Romans 15 here has these three promises in mind, to Adam, to Abraham and to David. You'll notice if you look again at the reference on the screen that Paul says at the end of that verse that Jesus came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. What fathers are Paul, is Paul referring to? 
Well, clearly he means the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham received the promises from God and he passed on the right of those promises to his son Isaac, who in turn passed them on to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. But there were two other promises given, a second to Adam and a third to David. Those other two promises were also confirmed as certain to be fulfilled when Jesus came. So although Paul's reference here to fathers primarily is about Abraham in this context, let us not forget that there were two other fathers that are implied in this verse. The reason we know that is because the New Testament begins, there are three, when the New Testament begins, there are three fathers that are singled out as being in the lineage of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1 verse 1, the very first verse of the New Testament alerts us to the fact that Jesus Christ had two very special and faithful fathers in his lineage. Jesus is the son of David and son of Abraham. He came in his first advent to confirm the promises made to David and Abraham. But that is not the only father identified in the opening of the New Testament record. In Luke chapter 3 verse 38 there is another genealogy of Jesus recorded and this genealogy traces back to Adam. The beginning of the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is son of David, Abraham and Adam. So when Paul says Jesus came to confirm the promises made to the fathers, there are three fathers identified in the New Testament, David, Abraham, Adam. And to each of them, God gave important promises. Important promises because each of these promises form the foundation teachings of the gospel that Jesus Christ preached, which if a person believes and is baptised into, will give them hope of eternal life and an inheritance with Jesus Christ of the whole world. The first of these promises in Genesis 3 verse 15, as we saw a few weeks ago, is a promise of eternal life given in the Garden of Eden. It promises eternal life that would be made possible by the victory over sin that would be achieved in the life, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 13 verse 6, Jesus Christ is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is represented by the lamb that was sacrificed in Eden that became the symbol of the man and the woman's acceptance of the salvation that would be achieved in Jesus Christ, the very core teaching of the gospel message. And so I highly recommend you go onto our website and watch the first presentation of this series that covers that subject in more detail. The second of the promises in, is in Genesis 12, is a, land, a promise of land given to Abraham. Like the first promise given to Adam, this promise is unique. It contains further information that makes up the gospel message of salvation. Specifically, this promise is about the inheritance of land that God will give Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3 verse 8, we are told that this promise given to Abraham is part of the message of the gospel. And the end of that chapter in Galatians 3 verse 26 to 29 tells us that if we understand and believe the gospel preached to Abraham, and if we respond in baptism, we will also inherit the world with Jesus Christ. So again, I highly recommend you go onto our website and watch the second presentation on this subject. The third and final of the promises in the Bible given to the third of the fathers, David, is a promise that Jesus Christ will establish a form of leadership that will change this world and make it a place of harmony and peace that it was created to be. 
It is a promise that Jesus Christ will return to the earth to lead people back to God by establishing an eternal kingdom on earth. But before we look at this promise in detail, let me just reinforce that this promise that we read read tonight is indeed about Jesus Christ, and secondly, that it is a promise that Jesus came to confirm. To do that, I want to direct you to two important statements made in this promise. The first is in verse 14, where God identifies who this leader is. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. God speaking here says that the leader promised here is his son, Jesus Christ. That is very, a very significant point in view of what we have seen so far. Yes, Jesus was born in the family line of a very important and faithful people, but there was something far more significant about Jesus' birth than that. In this promise, the most important thing about the genealogy of Christ is that God is his father. The leader promised to David, who would rule the world, is Jesus, the son of God. The second important thing I want you to notice about this promise is what we read in verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Jesus would be appointed the leader of the world, and that appointment would be eternal. God's mercy would never be taken away from Jesus, the Son of God, because unlike the first king of Israel, and all other kings in fact, Jesus would never sin. So this promise given to David is about a mercy that would be sure and definite because the one who receives it will be perfectly obedient to his God. Now, with those two elements in mind, the leader is Jesus, the son of God, and his leadership is eternal because God's mercy will always be with Jesus Christ as leader, let's come to Acts chapter 13. In this passage, we find that those two important elements of the promise are referred to here by the Apostle Paul. And he tells us that those two elements are fundamental issues of the gospel. In Acts 13, Paul immediately makes it clear that what he is about to tell us is about the gospel. Notice how he begins this section of the chapter in verse 32. We declare to you, says Paul, glad tidings. The word, words glad tidings in the Greek is the one word used in the New Testament, gospel. So we could read verse 32 as follows. And we declare unto you the gospel. Paul is preaching the gospel to the people there. What does he teach the gospel is? Well, let's read the rest of verse 32 through to verse 34. And we declare unto you the glad tidings or gospel, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers... God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now notice something peculiar there in verse 32. Paul says, I'm going to preach the gospel to you, and that gospel is about one promise. The word promise is singular, one promise to many fathers. 
Why is that important? Well, because what Paul is saying is that although there were three fathers to whom three different promises were made, to Adam, life, to Abraham, land, and to David, leadership, all three of those promises are in fact one promise, the teaching of the one gospel. All one promise because they are all about Jesus Christ, each of them highlighting a different feature. Paul here has only one feature in mind as he preaches the gospel. It is the feature of the promise of leadership that was given to David. Look how he begins speaking about the promise to David in verse 33 on leadership. He begins by telling us what we read back in Romans 15, that the promises were confirmed or fulfilled by Jesus Christ. God has fulfilled the same. God has confirmed the part of the promise to David just as he did with the promise to Abraham and Adam. How did God confirm the promise to David? God did it, says Paul, when he raised Jesus from the dead and gave him eternal life. All three promises spoke of an immortal saviour, and he has come, says Paul. Who is he? Who is this saviour? Paul continues in verse 33 and connects us to the first point we saw back in 2 Samuel 7. In the end of verse 33, Paul quotes from Psalm 2, which is an echo of 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, and confirms God's declaration that Jesus Christ is his son. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Having made that connection, Paul now turns to the second point. In the end of verse 34, the mercy that God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 15 is referred to by Paul. God's mercy would be shown to his obedient son in that God would not allow Jesus to experience corruption in death, like David has, as Paul goes on to say in verse 35 to 36. But God would raise him from the dead to everlasting life. Now, before we move on from this verse, let me point out to you how that these verses are important to us on a personal level. Looking back at verse 32, notice the important statement by the Apostle Paul. He writes, God has fulfilled this same one promise unto us. This one promise, with three features that God left to the three fathers, can be ours also. It is the gospel preached to us. We can be beneficiaries of the, of the promise given to the fathers David, Abraham and Adam. How? Well, on our way back to 2 Samuel 7, let's stop at Mark chapter 16. The Lord Jesus Christ commissioned his apostles to go forth and preach the gospel. He told them what they were to say to the people who heard that gospel message in verses 15 to 16. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. To be involved in the hope of the one promise that God made to the three fathers, we need to follow the steps to salvation that God has. And there are three of them. Firstly, there needs to be a belief of the gospel. To believe it, a person must understand it. To understand it, one has to study its contents. Secondly, there needs to be commitment. This commitment begins with baptism, a full immersion in water after belief. 
That ritual brings a person into a close relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there needs to be consistency. The promises of life and land and leadership can be ours if we respond to the call of the gospel, if we come to learn and understand the gospel and respond to it. A gospel that is taught in the New Testament but has its origin in the three important promises made to David, Abraham and Adam. So let's come back now to 2 Samuel 7 and let's briefly analyse this promise so that we can see its relevance to the purpose God has with establishing an eternal leader. The things that we see happening about us today, the state of our world is thankfully not going to continue forever. There is an end coming for all the injustice, all the evil, all the violence and corruption of this world. God has a purpose that he is going to accomplish through Jesus Christ. And that change that God promises to bring upon the world will be done by a strong and fair and purposeful leadership of Jesus Christ, who will be sent back to the earth to rule. Now, we have already established that fact from verse 14 and 15 of this chapter. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the subject of this promise, verse 14, and that God has an eternal purpose with him. God's mercy will never depart from him, verse 15. So let's look now at the details of this promise, and we begin in verse 12, because God has something to say personally to David about the timing of this promise. And when thy days be fulfilled... And thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, there are a few things we need to notice here. David was to die before this part of the promise would be fulfilled. The leader that God promises is future from David's lifetime. After David was dead, God would set up a person in the lineage of David who would be given a kingdom. That's what the last phrase in verse 12 means, I will establish his kingdom. That person is identified in the end of verse 12 as a male, his kingdom. This is Jesus Christ. How is God going to establish Christ's kingdom on earth? Well, the answer to that question was given to Mary, the mother of Jesus. In Luke 1 verse 32, the angel that spoke to Mary about this, about Jesus, the son of David, says, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. The kingdom that God promises here in 2 Samuel 7 to establish in Christ's name is the kingdom of Israel restored. That's why the first verse of the New Testament is so important. Jesus Christ is identified as of the lineage of David for this one reason, that he is the eternal heir to the throne of David and to the kingdom of Israel restored. That kingdom will be established, that kingdom will be centred in Jerusalem, the capital of the throne of of Christ's future kingdom. But that hasn't happened yet. It is still future. Jesus isn't ruling on a throne in Jerusalem today, but he will. Not only that, um, sorry, not only that, but in verse 13, when God establishes Christ as the leader of this kingdom, 
Christ will build a temple for God. He shall build a house for my name. The house that God is talking about here is a literal house or a temple to be built in Jerusalem. The kingdom of Israel in the past was noted for its magnificent temple that Solomon, the son of David, built. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This is not Solomon. This is Jesus Christ. The temple that Jesus will build will never be destroyed like Solomon's was. It will become a temple, not just for Jews, but for all nations. Well, when will all these things happen? The answer is in verse 16. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. All these things will happen when Jesus returns. That's what, is, what verse 16 is anticipating. Notice back in verse 12 we read that David was to die before this promise would be fulfilled. But he would not remain in the grave forever. In verse 16 we read that David is to be resurrected from the dead to not only see Christ build his kingdom, but to be part of it. The resurrection will happen when Jesus returns to the earth from heaven to establish God's kingdom on earth and to build the temple in Jerusalem. So this promise to David gave him the hope that he would be raised to receive eternal life promised to Adam, that he would be resurrected and inherit the world with Jesus Christ, promised to Abraham, and that David would help Jesus Christ administer the laws in the kingdom to bring about positive changes to our world. We haven't got time to develop that further now because there are so many Bible verses that speak about the good things that Jesus will achieve when he sets up his kingdom. But let me refer you to just one passage on this matter that is worth looking up later. Psalm 72. Psalm 72 describes what changes Jesus Christ will bring and why his rule will succeed. Here is a snippet of the changes. Firstly, in verse 2, he shall judge all people with righteousness. Christ will personally be involved in the global administration of righteous laws. These laws will deliver exactly what is lacking in the world today. In verse 7, it says that there shall be an abundance of peace as long as the moon endures. Peace will not only be worldwide, but it will endure throughout eternity. In verse 11, all present rulers will gladly relinquish their positions of power and willingly submit to Jesus Christ when they realise how beneficial his rule will be. In verses 12 to 14, they will see that his focus of care will bring relief to the poor and needy. And the reason those things and others will work is because in verse 15, Jesus shall live, and in verse 17, his name will endure as long as the sun. Both of those expressions mean that Jesus will rule eternally. There will be no change of government, no change to the system Jesus Christ puts in place. In Daniel 2, verse 44, we read this summary. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's what the promise to David, given to David anticipates. The coming 
of the new leader, Jesus Christ. Now, in all the promises so far, we have seen that God offers the opportunity to be part of them. In Acts 13, remember, we read, God has fulfilled these promises to us. We are offered an opportunity to be involved in this promise to David. Let's come back to verse 11 of this promise. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also Yahweh telleth thee that he will make thee an house. It is that last sentence that I want you to notice. The Lord telleth thee that he will make thee, David, a house. You know, from the moment God made his first promise to Adam, God has been involved in a building project himself. This building project referred to in the end of verse 11 is not a building of bricks and mortar. This is a house of people. God promised David that he would develop the lineage of people whom he would call to participate in these amazing promises. The people who make up this house are not related by blood. They're related by their faith in God and Jesus Christ. They are people who have read the promises of God that are fundamental to the gospel, believed them, and have responded by being baptised and, the, and then living consistently in godliness. Friends, God wants you and me to be part of the house, the family that have the faith of David. When Jesus returns to the earth and raises David from the grave, David will witness two things. In verse 16, he will firstly see his house of faithful people, and secondly, he will see the kingdom of Israel restored by Jesus Christ. And we can be there too, friends, as part of that. What do we need to do? Let's come to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 2. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. In verse 2, we have a summary of our life in this world today. We labour for financial stability, but we never will achieve it. There is no lasting satisfaction in what the world offers us. If you have come to that realisation, then God says in verse 1, Come to me, for I have something that is free and lasting, that will satisfy you eternally. What is it that God has? Well, verse 3, he says, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. God has the sure mercies that he gave David to give to us. The merciful hope of a leader that will solve all of humanity's problems and bring peace. Those mercies are found in the gospel, in the promises that God gave that we have so briefly touched on tonight. The one promise given to three fathers, Adam, Abraham and David. The one promise of eternal life, of eternal inheritance and eternal leadership. 
the one promise of the gospel that can be ours if we believe, are baptised and live in faith of God's coming kingdom on earth. Friends, these promises are not obscure or unimportant Old Testament words. They are real and relevant to us. They reveal the sure purpose of God with Jesus Christ and with this earth. They provide us with hope, showing us how we can escape the destiny of those that refuse God and we can have hope of divine nature. If we want eternal life, then learn from the error of Adam. Hear and obey God's law. If we want an internal inheritance, then follow Abraham, who turned his back on the world and looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. If we want eternal leadership, then trust in the mercy of God that never forsakes the faithful. If we do that, friends, then in the future we will joyously sing these words, written by Jesus Christ as the song of those he saves, recorded in Revelation 5, verse 9 to 10. Thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, the promise of life to Adam. Thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, the promise of leadership to David. And we shall reign on the earth, the promise of land to Abraham. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and uh, welcome along this evening to our presentation on the promise to Abraham land. Now, I'm sure everybody in the world today understands or has heard of the man Abraham, even though it's a, a subject that's right throughout the Bible. Nevertheless, I'm sure recently that uh, people have come to hear the name Abraham quite, quite a bit. In this presentation, or this um, PowerPoint presentation as before us, we might remember back in 2020, there was a thing, an international accord signed, a peace treaty and a trade treaty called the Abrahamic Accord or the Abraham Accord. This was something of a miracle between the nation of Israel and some of the United Arab Emirate nations around about and they're still increasingly uh, joining together to sign where Israel and these nations came together the first time in thousands of years. And the fact that it was called the Abrahamic Accord is the, is the reason that both the Arabs and the Jews believe Abraham is their father. Abraham had two notable sons. One was called Ishmael, and he was the father of the Arabs, and Isaac, who was the father of the, of the Jews. Down through time, these two nations and peoples have been at enmity one with another, constant fighting and wars that we have seen in the last 50 or so years. But now... We see, according to the scriptures, and particularly in the Ezekiel chapter 38, the Arab nations are now uh, coming together as they have a common enemy in Iran. And so you can see that this peace agreement is tying all of these people together under the suffrage of the uh, American nation. And when you come to Romans chapter 13, this reading that we had this evening, 
There's some interesting points in here that speak of this man Abraham. First of all, you notice that the word promise has, uh, appears in that particular uh, passage of scripture. It's interesting because we're going to see that the word promise will be bobbing up quite a bit throughout our lecture this evening. Because the promise to Abraham is an important promise down through the ages, not for the people uh, of, um, of Abraham and his family, but for other people through the, throughout the earth even today and ourselves here in this room or if those people watching us online at this particular time, if we give heed to what, this, what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Because it goes on to say that uh, these people or the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not only to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So what you have here is already three points. There's a promise being made uh, to people that are called the heir, and that promise is of the world. And it was not just to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, understand at this particular point of time when, Roman, uh, when Paul is speaking about these things, that there's still a little bit of a mist of misunderstanding or what we have to go uh, to look at to see what the Apostle Paul is actually talking about. But what we're showing is the Apostle Paul is emphasising the fact that there was a promise made to Abraham and the promise was that he was going to gain the world. Now, that word world is a translation of a Hebrew word called Eretz. And throughout the Old Testament, the word Eretz speaks of Eretz Israel, the world of Israel or the land of Israel. It can be translated world or, 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 um, or land. And so here's the Apostle Paul has picked that up and said not only was he promised the land, he was actually promised the world. And I'm sure we're going to see that in a moment. And not only was he promised, but those people that are described here as the heir uh, of this promise, as I uh, mentioned here, as the seed. So, as we go further in this particular chapter of Romans, chapter 4, you come to verse 20 to 21, and we have here that Abraham actually believed with a passion that's not seen often in the Bible. A man like Abraham, when he understood the promises that were made to him, we read there that he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So you can see once again that word promise comes up. And when it says he staggered uh, not at the promise of God through unbelief, you're going to see a little later that, 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 that uh, his belief was so enormous and so amazing because this man, Abraham, though he was given a promise of a land or, or a promise of the earth, he never ever received it in his lifetime. He never received it in heaven like some people out in the world do, various religions, because what's the use of land to a person like Abraham or the earth to a person like Abraham if he was going to go to heaven? The Bible doesn't hold up that hope for men like Abraham or any others whatsoever. And when you come to Acts chapter 7 from verses 1 to 5, uh, what we're introduced to here is a man called Stephen who we all know or the world knows as the first Christian martyr. The word martyr in the book of Acts means witness. He was the first witness of the events of the Lord Jesus Christ to be put to death for his beliefs. And he was giving an account 
of where the Jewish believers had come from, and yet they did not understand it. So we read there that he, Stephen, said, and he's addressing a great company of people, he says, Men, brethren and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, and he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into a land that I will show thee. So a God of glory appeared unto him when he was in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldees, as we'll see a little later, and said to him, Come into a land that I'm going to show thee. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. From thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And you notice those line, that line that is under uh, that passage which is underlined. He gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed. Once again, the word seed after him, when as yet he had no child. Now, what Stephen was pointing out here is that the God of Glory appeared to Abraham in a, a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which is round about where Babylonia used to be in, the old, in ancient days. It's in the area of uh, Iran today uh, and the, bordering some of the uh, Arab countries. God appeared to him, and God appeared to him at that time, and this man Abraham was an idolater. He didn't believe in God whatsoever. He believed in idols. And yet it says here that the God of glory appeared to him, gave him a promise or told him to come to a land that he was going to show him and it says, uh, and Stephen says, he never, even though he was promised this land, he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as set his foot on, yet he had promised it to him and to his seed after him. What made Abraham make that great journey, as we're going to see in a moment, to come out? Well, I've got a little illustration about that. You've got Abraham here, now, he's in, his, in Ur of the Chaldees, in, a, in an area he was an idolater. Some suggest that he might have been a, a sheep herder or a cattle herder of some sort. And the God of glory appeared unto him. Now in the Bible, the God of glory is not speaking about the God of heaven above. It's speaking of a representative of God, even an angel. And this angel, in glorious manifestation, came before Abraham and told him to move out of this country, to come into a land that he would show him, and he was going to promise him that land. Now you imagine if that was to happen to any of us and we actually saw a person that we could, we could suggest or could say that he was a real person that came to us and had told us to come to a different land and he was going to give us that particular land, with that sort of manifestation, divine manifestation, we would certainly move according to that. It'd be like somebody coming along and saying to you, a car pulling up alongside of you and somebody getting out and saying, look, here is a letter... It's giving you a house somewhere. It's totally uh, free for you. It's been given to you by somebody. And you might say, well, I don't believe that. There's a lot of scams going around today. And he said, well, take this letter to the bank. And when you go to the bank, they'll verify that it's true. And you would obviously believe it. Well, that's the same as this. This, the God of glory appeared to Abraham in such a manifestation that he was convinced that that God was able to do what he would, uh, had promised him to do. And in this next illustration, we have a picture, a map of the area of um, Abraham's journey. And Abraham began at Ur of the Chaldees here in this corner here. 
He travelled with his parents, with his father and mother, up to a place called Haran, as um, Stephen said in his address. He remained there for a period of time where his father died, and then he came down into this area of Israel as it is known today. Particularly, the first place he came to was the place of Shechem. Shechem becomes a very interesting place for anybody that is going to change his religion. It's throughout the scriptures as that particular type of place. And Abraham came here and he erected his first altar. And we're going to see that in a moment when we come to Genesis chapter uh, 12. So we come to Genesis chapter 12 and we're going to see the origin of the promises that were made to Abraham on this occasion. In Genesis chapter 12, from verses 1 to 3, we read these words. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So what we have straight away, as Stephen already mentioned in his address to the uh, elders of the Jewish country at that time, he was going to come from his father's house unto a land that God was going to show him. We make no apologies of the constant repetition of some words that we're going to see, like the words land and promise, uh, because they're going to be reoccurring all the time. It's an emphasis throughout the scriptures that Abraham was promised land. And that promise was uh, re re reiterated in the New Testament as well. I well remember years ago on the banks of the River Torrens speaking about this particular subject to some people who were uh, supposed to be religious people. And they did not believe in the Old Testament. And I mentioned this about Abraham uh, receiving this land and the promises made to Abraham. And they said, tear it out, tear it out. And they are showing their ignorance there that the promises made to Abraham are scattered right throughout the scriptures and a very important element of the word of God. And it goes on to say that in Genesis 12 verse 3 that I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now when you look at that it doesn't seem to be, um, you can't really understand it too much when we just read those words but later on we're going to see interpretations of that particular passage. Suffice it to say that the word families in the, he in the Hebrew means a circle of relatives, a circle of close relatives. It's not particularly referring to the nation of Israel, as we're going to see. It's referring to all of those people that God has associated with Abraham, some close and not, some not so close. And then when you come to Genesis chapter 12, we come to that part of scripture where Abraham had now fulfilled his uh, journey down into the land of Israel and he's now come to Shechem and there Abraham it says uh, he built an altar and you read there that the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto thy seed will I give this land and there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him so you've got the seed mentioned here once again and in this place the land once mentioned once again. And some people have pointed out the fact that the land here seems to be given unto the seed and not so much to Abraham himself. But that's the beginning or an element of the promises that God made to him. And we're going to see that that particular seed, the Apostle Paul 
picks on this particular quotation and he, and he, uh, exp he gives an exposition of the quotation and he tells us who this seed is. It's very important for us in these last days, what we call the last days of the Gentiles, at this point of time in history, to understand what God is speaking about in this place. Now it goes on further and there's two or three quotations in um, Genesis speaking of this promise, but it's showing to us that the promises were made were important in the eyes of God. So once again we read, And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him. And Lot was the uh, nephew of, of um, Abraham. He had travelled down with him all that way from Ur of the Chaldees into the land of Israel. And when they were in the land of Israel, they had so much cattle and goods between them that they couldn't subsist one with another. So they decided to separate. And Lot and his family chose to go one way and Abraham remained where he was. Lot chose a very fertile area and Abraham remained in an area which was not so fertile, probably took a lot more work for his cattle or sheep, whatever he had at that time, for him to, uh, for their grazing. But God told Abraham, he says, Now, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. And I'll make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. And notice it says, Arise, walk through the land, in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I'll give it unto thee. Now that is a great little emphasis in that passage, that Abraham, throughout the whole land that he could see, as far as his eyes could see, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, God was going to give it unto him. And we point out that in no place did God tell Abraham to look to the heavens because that was going to be his inheritance. He told him to look to the earth and to everything that he could see and that's, God says, for I will give that unto thee. And the last passage in the book of Genesis that we're looking at is Genesis chapter 17 and at verse 8. There are other quotations which mention it again but it suffices us to see that God has been promising land to uh, Abraham and we see that once again. He says, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So there is a, a point that is being made, the land once again, but this word everlasting means it's never going to come to an end. And Abraham came to understand that. He knew he wasn't going to get it in his lifetime because he believed in the resurrection from the dead. He believed that at some time in the future, uh, he and many others were going to be resurrected from the dead and they would be given this land and it would be an everlasting possession. No man living today or even at that time in their mortality could ever have an everlasting possession of land because once a person dies he gives up any rights to any material possessions that they might have and has to pass it on to other people. But God was promising him that this possession or this promise was going to be an everlasting possession. And that's why it says in the book of Romans, or that's why Paul says that Abraham staggered not. Even though it was such a stupendous uh, promise to be made... He believed God for what he said because he understood it, the God of glory had appeared to him 
and that God of glory was of divine origin and had the ability to do these things. And things happened in Abraham's life where it, would, it was proven to him that God had that ability to do what he had said he would do. I think, ladies and gentlemen, we can see that, we can, that the Bible has shown that God's promised land, God had promised Abraham land. But we might have overlooked an important uh, point connected with that promise, that the land, as we also already mentioned, was also promised Abraham's seed. But who was the seed being promised at this time? This is an interesting point that is being made. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we saw that uh, he was promised a land that God would show him. Then in verse 3, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And remember we said that the word families there means a close circle of, of relatives. But in chapter 12, verse 7, we read that the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. We mentioned here, just by way of aside, that this time he was then in Shechem. And as we mentioned, Shechem is an important uh, place in the Bible because many people came there. Uh, Abraham's son Jacob came there later on and uh, Joshua came there later on. And all of these place, places made a change in their lives. Abraham changed from an idolater and gave that sacrifice. He became a worshipper of the one and only true God and believed the promises that were made unto him that he would be given a land. And in this place, his seed would be given that land. But who was that seed that God was mentioning? The Jewish nation? Once again, the Apostle Paul supplies the answer. And we read in Galatians chapter 3 and at verse 8, and Paul is going back now to the scriptures of the Old Testament, and he's pointing something out to his readers. Uh, Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians was written to people that were, uh, who were living at that time in Asia Minor. Today it's in uh, the southern part of Turkey. And it says there that Paul says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham when he said, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now let's digest what he's saying there. So he's talking to the Galatian believers, those people that were living in southern Turkey, and he said, God saw, foresaw, the scripture rather, foresaw that God was going to justify the heathen. The word justify means to make righteous the nations or the Gentile nations. Uh, and it was going to be through their understanding of the word of God, even through faith. So to do that, he preached the, before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now you've probably heard a lot of people talking about that we must believe in the gospel and that Christians talk about believing in the gospel. And the word gospel is a Greek word which means the great news or good news. What's the good news? Well, the good news is everything concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom or the land that is going to be established in the future. So the kingdom that is going to come is connected with the land that was promised to Abraham. And remember that when the disciples came to the Lord Jesus Christ, they said to him, teach us how to pray. And he's, he said, he gave them a, a template, as it were. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All the elements that we've been discussing, but we've just been concentrating on the land section, 
in which the kingdom is going to be established. So that gospel uh, contains, as, it, as the Apostle Paul is saying here, it's actually, it, it's, it's actually encapsulating these words, in thee shall all nations be blessed. What it is really is that the gospel was going to go forth to many people out in the world, and I think we all understand that was the, that's what the gospel was all about. But it was going to be connected with the man Abraham. It says, because in him shall all nations be blessed. And how was that going to be? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, or Paul says once again in Galatians, in the next few verses, in verse 16, he said, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he said not to seeds, that is, in the plural, he's not talking about a multitude of seeds like some people might have thought that that's what God was talking about in Genesis chapter 12 and at verse 7 when they were in, in um, Shechem. He says, And not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So he said that promise that was made to Abraham in Shechem, that God was going to give him this land, wasn't going to be to a multitude of people like people might think the Jewish nation, He's talking about one seed, and that one seed was one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the seed of Abraham that was going to come. In another place, we talk about the mighty ones of Abraham, of Isaac, and of, Israel, and of Jacob. And the first mighty one was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And many other mighty ones are going to come through the generations of Abraham through faith, and all of those people are going to be resurrected in the, day, in the, in the very near future. And they are going to be uh, receive this promise. As because we read of that in Galatians chapter 3 and at verse 29, Paul goes on to say, And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And you probably remember that word heirs that kept on coming up. So the heirs of Abraham who are going to receive uh, the possession of the land is those people who are in Christ Jesus. And so it shows you that how important it is to understand the Abrahamic uh, promises that have been made. God's promised them, him land. And that land can only be uh, given to him when he's resurrected from the dead in the future. And that same promise is given to people who are called his heirs. All of those people that are in Christ Jesus at his return to the earth, as the Bible speaks about, it's not our subject to discuss this evening. But we do know by the signs of the times and the events of the world that are taking place today and the very reason that Israel has been gathered back in the land, which is a miracle in itself, after 2,000 years' dispersion into all parts of the earth, is a sign that God's plan and purpose with the earth is coming to about. And his promises uh, are going to be fulfilled. And Abraham is going to get that land. And many people... Uh, who are in Christ Jesus, likewise, are going to receive the promise and find a place in that land. And when we come to Hebrews, which is another writing of the Apostle Paul, he discusses it once again, and you can see how many times that Abraham and his promises that were made to him are so important in the Scriptures. So we look at Hebrews chapter 6, first of all, through from uh, verse 13 to 18. And so once again he says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. 
And so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath the confirmation to them is an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. There's quite a bit of information in there, but let's just go through it very uh, slowly so that we can digest what the Apostle Paul is talking about. First of all, the important thing is, he says, for when God had made promise to Abraham, which we've been discussing all night, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. And what he said, because I am the great God of heaven, because there's no greater, I myself promise that this promise will come about. And Abraham believed that because he understood that there's no greater person that could give such a promise as this uh, uh, himself. And Paul goes on to say a little bit further down, it says, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, conferred it by an oath that by two immutable things, we'll have a look at that word in a minute, in the which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Do you see now what the Apostle Paul is doing? He's now including other people in that title, in that second or the last couple of lines of that paragraph where he's talking about the heirs of promise. He says that by two immutable things which was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. What the Apostle Paul is doing, he's writing to some people that lived in the land of Israel on this occasion. He's reminding them of the importance of keeping their hope strong. He's reminding them of their importance of the promises made to Abraham. He's reminding them of the great future promise or the great hope that they have of being heirs of those promises made to Abraham and that is of immortality in the land that is going to be given to them. That's why he uses the word we. Now we're going to have a look at the English Standard Version of this particular passage. And we read it once again. It makes it a little bit clearer. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He obtained the promise, but not the reality. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In the old days, when people would get together and they would... Um, come to a conclusion and an agreement, there'd be some form of oath sworn and that would be saying, you keep to your word and they would say, and you've probably heard the expression, they would say, my oath I will. And so that was an agreement. Modern days, of course, we sign agreements. They're contracts or covenants that are made and uh, once again, the same thing. So it says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs, that is to all of those that believe those things, all of those people that are in Christ Jesus, the un of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, 
he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. What does he mean by having fled for refuge? Well, in a world that would not believe uh, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ at that time, they treated them as a peculiar sect. Uh, these people who have fled for refuge, they fled for refuge in, into Christ Jesus. It's the same today. All around the world, you've got all sorts of different religions and so many other things people believe in, things like evolution and so forth. Uh, it's a small group of people who will ever believe the promises that are made to Abraham and flee for refuge into the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's um, where we are uh, this evening. It's our appeal unto you that if it be, if you can, we'd like you to take these matters further, look into these things, and to, and to um, uh, having looked into these things, to take upon yourselves to come into the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore become heirs of the great promises that are made to Abraham.